Scripture for the sermon this morning is Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I'll be with you this week while Pastor Charlie is in Romania, and then next week we get to hear from Dave Fergus, who's going to bring a message on the gospel and work. So we look forward to that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to work in this passage. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for your steadfast love and for the good news of the gospel. And I just pray this morning, Lord, that you would um, open our eyes to see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would be confronted in different ways that we reject your grace. And I ask God that we would have a more pure dependence upon you and you alone in the sufficiency of your grace. So I just, uh, I pray that you would help us to see the, your love, which is an unheard of love. And I pray, Father, that um, we would take application points away from this story, a common parable that we probably know backwards and forwards, and yet there's still things in it that you have to teach us from it. So we ask that you would be with us now. We ask that you would open up our eyes to behold your beauty, and we pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts so that we would be more and more dependent upon your steadfast love, more and more convicted that you are with us and never against us, and more and more secure in your grace and your grace alone. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask you a question. Which is worse? The sin of the lawbreaker or the sin of the lawkeeper? Now, it's a provoking question because it is so much easier to think better of the lawkeeper than it is to think of the lawbreakers. Lawbreakers wreck society, they make it hard for businesses to operate, they threaten our safety and our ways of life, do they not? Lawbreakers are the reason we need locks on the doors and why we have to go through airport security and why we need contracts and why we need passwords. You might be wondering, how is lawkeeping a sin? Isn't it good for people, and more specifically Christians, to abide by the laws of the land and God's laws? And indeed, the short answer to that is, yes, it is good to abide by laws. So when is it a sin to be a law keeper? It is a sin to be a law keeper when it is your law keeping that keeps you from receiving the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. When your law keeping causes you to reject the mercy and the grace of God in Christ, that's when it's a sin. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the chief law keepers. The Pharisees were, at the time, the Jewish religious leaders, and they controlled the temples, and they controlled the religious rites and practices of the people. Suddenly, Jesus appears, and he is marching to a much different beat. And this probably wouldn't be a big deal, except that he was gaining quite the following, and he was threatening the authority of the powers at be, the Pharisees. And because Jesus was radically redefining how one relates and connects to the living God, it was the Pharisees who ultimately devised the plan and successfully put Jesus, the King of Kings, to death. So I ask you again, which is worse, the sin of the lawbreaker or the sin of the law keeper? Now, a second point by way of introduction. 
The prodigal son, I'm going to suggest to you, is actually a bad title for this parable. Now, I don't want to sound arrogant here as if I'm the guy that finally comes around and sets the church straight and lets you all know that it's a poor title. It's probably a fine enough title, but here's the reason why I think it's actually not a great title. Because it draws attention to the younger son, to the prodigal son, as if he's the only son in the parable that matters, and that it is as if his sin is the worst of the two. But we are told right off the bat that the father has two sons. And I want to suggest to you that both of them are equally as important to the climax of the story. And perhaps even the second son, the neglected one, is the one that is more important to the climax of what Jesus is really driving at here. So that's why I think maybe the title should be called The Two Lost Sons or something like it. Now, in order to understand the story that Jesus teaches, we must understand the context that he gives it in, starting in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. So if you would read with me, it says, The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the occasion here. The context is that Jesus was hanging out with lawbreakers, and the lawkeepers were disgusted by it. They were threatened by it. They didn't like it at all. So what does Jesus do? Well, he answers their dilemma. He actually engages their concern. He legitimizes it, and he tells them a parable. Now, we have bonus material here. We have a three-part series. We have a trilogy. I know you guys love trilogies. So we have one this morning. Aren't you glad you got up and came to church? Um, We have the lost sheep. We have the lost coin and the lost sons. All three of these stories are directed at the Pharisees, you see. And they are having a really hard time with the fact that Jesus is seeking to reconcile with lawbreakers. So that's what this story is really driving at. The Pharisees, the older brother, the law keepers, the self-righteous. I hope that you see what's going on here. The first two stories are important. They're not just redundant. They actually set up story number three. Now in story number one, there's what's going on. There's a lost sheep. There's a shepherd who seeks after them, and then the sheep is found, and then there is rejoicing. In the second one, there is a woman. She loses a coin. The coin is found, and then there is rejoicing. In the story number three, there is a lost son. The son is found, and then there is rejoicing. Well, kind of, but no. The pattern is like this. I hope you see the pattern. It goes lost and found, and then rejoicing. Lost and found, and then rejoicing. And then in the third one, it goes lost and found, and... When the older son gets angry, he doesn't join the party. And is out of place, as this is, his response that just falls off the cliff, it doesn't fill in the blank, Jesus says, that's the point. That is the point. The way this jagged edge is sticking out at the end of this story, 
That's what I'm driving at here. So the older son, the law-keeping son, is angry at the celebration. And Jesus makes the point to the Pharisees and to the crowd and to us this morning to beware of the sin of law-keeping that keeps you from receiving the grace of God that you utterly need. That is the warning. Now, I want to spend the majority of our time here looking at the historical background of this parable. So let's dive in and kind of break this down and flesh it out a little bit, shall we? The younger son demands his share of the inheritance. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but I assure you, it is a big deal. This reminds me of where Scripture... You remember in the death account of Jesus, and it says, and they scourged him. And that's it. Like, it was no big deal. But it wasn't until I actually watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ. You ever seen that one? And you start to realize, wow, scourging is a big deal. It is a horrific deal. The New Testament audience, why would they just say they scourged him like it was nothing? Well, it's because the New Testament audience understood how horrific a Roman scourging actually was. So they didn't actually have to flesh it out. They didn't have to say much about it. Now, to us, it doesn't look like much, so we have to look into it a little bit more. And this parable here is filled with all such nuances that are really cultural in nature. Now, it was lawful for the younger son to receive a third of the inheritance, um, while the older son would receive two-thirds. However, this was customary only when the father was dead or obviously approaching death, and death was imminent, right? So when the son demands his inheritance, you know what he was essentially saying to his father? Father, I wish you were dead. And that's not an exaggeration. I, 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 I leaned a lot on this book called The Cross and the Prodigal by Kenneth Bailey, who has spent decades in the Middle East studying their culture and understanding all of these nuances, and he said that he goes from village to village, and everywhere he asks, uh, is this possible that somebody would go, a younger son, go to his father and ask for the inheritance before he was dead? They said, all said unanimously, no, that would never happen. And theoretically, if it did, if such a request were made, um, the father would be expected to drive the son out of the family with nothing but physical blows. How about that? Now, why was this such a big deal if such a request were made? And again, because that would have meant that he wanted this, the father dead. So his ask, his request for the share of the inheritance would have been a death wish upon his father. And it raises the second point and how the village factors into this story. Now, we don't realize how the entire village was listening into the conversation, not because they were actually there, but because they were a communal culture and everything is shared. So thus, the community expectation, and there would have been a community expectation. There would have been an expectation upon this father to act a certain way, and that would have been for him to refuse the son and cut him off. For the father to grant the request of, to, the, to his son would have been a great dishonor to him. It would have lost face, and in this culture, losing face is a big deal. So, this contributes to how great the sacrifice is that the father is making here. I hope you can see that. Not only does he receive his death wish, not only is he rejected by his son, 
but to some extent he is dishonored now by his village. And the sacrifice goes even deeper, you see. In order for them to render the cash, they would have had to liquidate assets. They would have had to sell land. I hope you can understand how important their land was to them and their identity as a people. And it is customary in this, in this uh, land and in the way that they do things, they barter, for sales to go on for several days. And if you sell cheaply, and we're told that he actually leaves pretty quickly, which means they would have gotten all the sales done quickly. And to sell quickly is to sell cheaply, you see. So for them to come up with a third of the inheritance, they would have actually had to come up with, it, it would have eaten into more of the family wealth. It would have meant more like half, probably. So they're sacrificing there as well. And this would have eaten into the inheritance of the older brother, you see. And the older brother is now looking at his father saying, why are you granting this to him? Why are you selling all of our assets at such a low price? Don't you realize this is eating into my inheritance now? And you see the sin and the selfishness of the younger prodigal son is completely tearing the family apart now. Now, we're told that the younger brother sets off for a journey to a distant country. The likelihood of his return, you should understand, is very uncertain, even if he intended fully to come back. It would have been a lot like sending somebody off to war, really not knowing if they were going to make it back. Because travel in the ancient Mideast was not like getting in your Toyota Camry, the most reliable car out there, probably, on nice, safe, paved roads. It was very dangerous, you see. And not only that, he was carrying a third of his family inheritance. So there is his father, left, totally rejected by his son, family torn apart, losing part of his land, not knowing if he would ever see his son again, wondering if his inheritance, if his family wealth and property was going to wind up lining the pockets of some pack of robbers. That's a tough spot to be in. I hope you can see how far the father is sacrificing and sticking his neck out for his son at this point. How deeply he was rejected. And when the son gets to his destination, he lives recklessly, we see that. Under the deception that he knows how to live his life and how to pursue his own joy. He squanders the family wealth in a Gentile land and the famine comes upon him and the land that he's in. Now consider how serious a famine was in the ancient Middle East. There's no American Red Cross, there's no FEMA relief groups, there's nothing like that. There's probably bodies lying in the streets. There's probably children being sold into slavery. There's probably violence going on and probably even cannibalism. Now, this is the horror that would have been on the minds of Jesus' audience. And the reason why I'm telling you this and spelling this out for you is because I want you to see what great lengths the son goes to to avoid going back home. He goes through incredible lengths to avoid going back home. In fact, we're told that he actually gets hired by a local. And what is he doing? Feeding pigs. Now, you have to understand, this is a Jewish, this is a Jewish man. Pigs are unclean. They are taboo. And what's worse than eating a pig for a Jew? Eating the entrails of a pig. Eating the stuff that the pigs are eating. 
I hope you can understand how shocking this is. Jesus' audience would have been, what? This is shocking. It doesn't land on us that way. This is utterly shocking. And I hope you can see that there's a reason why he goes through such an extreme to avoid going back home. And the reason for that is because he he knows what would await him if he returned. He knows exactly what awaited him. Here's a quote. If, if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to return home, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so is cut off. This ceremony was actually had a name, and it was called the Kizaza, which literally means the cutting off. After it was through, the community would have nothing to do with the wayward person, and his identity would be forever covered in shame. There would literally be children following him around saying, you're the guy who spoiled your family's inheritance in the Gentile land. And that was how he would be known. That's his identity. You see that? So therefore, he is not eager to return home. And for good reason. And it's important for us to realize that. So, what does he do? He's in a tough spot. In fact, the only reason maybe why he does decide to return home is because it's become a matter of life and death. If he doesn't, he's going to die. Because the famine is severe. So he comes up with a plan. And we read about it in verse 18 and 19. I will arise, and I'll go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, let's, let's wrestle with this a little bit. It appears that he is really repentant. But I'm going to suggest to you that he is not repentant in this situation. And here's why. His admission, first of all, his admission that he is not worthy to be called a son... Everybody would have known that. That was, that was common knowledge. That's obvious. So it's not showing really a heart of humility. Now, there are three clues that his motives are not repentance. First, he says he wants to eat. You notice that? I'm going to die. I'm, not, I'm hungry. I want to eat. And there's food at my father's house. And second, he rehearses his speech. You notice what the occasion is? He doesn't come first to the realization, oh my gosh, I've sinned against my father. He first comes to the realization, man, these consequences are horrible. I'm hungry and I want to eat. Here's what I'll do. I'm not worthy to be called this up. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Now, here's the difference between real repentance and ungodly repentance. Godly and ungodly. In godly repentance, you are sorry for offending God. And in ungodly repentance, you are sorry because of the consequences that you are now enduring. And I think this is, this is what he's, he's up to. He's sorry that he's in this horrible situation. He doesn't first come to the realization, I've sinned against my father. That's part of his spiel. That's part of his rehearsal, you see. And then the third thing that he points out is that he plans to ask to be a hired servant which is essentially, it's literally translated, a skilled craftsman. So what's the picture here? His plan is to go home, and he wants to be hired as a skilled craftsman. He's going to skill, gain a skill, and his thought is, I'm going to earn back everything that I have lost. I'm going to pay it back. 
and I'm going to regain the trust that I had lost, and I'm going to regain the money that I had spent, and I'm going to work my way back into the good graces of my family and my community and my village, and I will be accepted based on my merit. I'll pay it back. I messed up, but I'm going to patch it up. That's what he's thinking. I think that's what's going on here. And this all adds to how utterly fantastic it is to see how the story unfolds. The son approaches the father, and he's about to go through his rehearsal, his little spiel. And the father is already running out to him, you see? The father is running out to him. I hope you understand, by the way, culturally, this is something that is unheard of. Men, the patriarchs of the family, do not go running. That's something for kids to do. Exposing his calves and his flesh and his legs. That was dishonorable, say. So the fact that he's going out, he sees him, he now starts to go out and approach him. He's essentially dishonoring himself, going out to his son, and what does he do? He hugs him and he kisses him. And he says, go get the finest robe and cover his shame and cover his poverty, right? He says, go kill the grain-fed cow that is certified USDA prime and let us celebrate. That's what a fattened calf is, by the way. It's a grain-fed calf that has USDA prime meat. Sounds delicious. Meat was a delicacy in this culture. They did not eat it every day like we do. Well, some of us do. Um, so the son thought that he would re-enter in a servant-master relationship with his father. But his father rejoices to see him. The son thought that he would repay his way back into the family. And it was really the father who was leveraging his good reputation, his righteousness within the village that spared the son from being cut off. Do you see the, when the father was running out to the son? He was really showing the whole community how we should respond to this, this man. And the fact that the father ran out to him, got to him before anybody else did, it was as if he interceded, as if he was making atonement, and then he imputes his righteousness and covers him with his robe. And it kind of sets the tone for how the rest of the community now should respond to the son. It was his father's righteousness and his good standing that essentially alleviates him and saves him from being cut off and having to face the kazaza ceremony. The son didn't come home intending to reconcile. He wanted to eat. And I would suggest it probably isn't until he experiences the grace of his father and treated as a son, that he begins to realize what his sin really was. He thought that he blew the inheritance, but what his sin really was is that he blew his father off. How shocked do you think he was to be received like this? How scared do you think he was walking into town? How undeserved does he know the grace of his father to be when he was sitting in that party and everybody celebrating? 
You see, brothers and sisters, it is the kindness of God that leads us actually to true repentance. And for the first time, the amazing love of his father highlights the severity of his sin. And he knows, he knows what grace really is. Now let's look at the older son here for a moment, shall we? All this is contrasted now with the older son. He hears the dancing, he hears the music, and this is what he sees. He starts to see, or he sees his younger brother eating into his inheritance. That's what he sees going on. Now, not only with what has already been wasted, but now with this party that is coming out of what would be going to him. He doesn't rejoice. He's angry. He's resentful. And once again, we see the Father's love that is completely unheard of. You see, in this situation, the fact that the older son refuses to come in and greet the guests was a public insult, not only to the guests, but to his father. A public insult. And that would have brought great shame upon him. Now, the mood at the party at this moment would have been very tense. It would have maybe, the way that I came up with to maybe describe this is if you're at a wedding. Imagine you're at a wedding, beautiful ceremony, There's a reception, everyone's dancing, having a great time, and the older sister of the bride, kind of in a drunken state, goes up and grabs the mic and says, can we kill the music? I just want to say something. I want to tell everybody what a little brat my little sister is and how my father always favored her. What's the mood like in that party now? There's a great deal of shame that's been hurled upon everybody, including the father who paid for the party. And that's kind of perhaps the mood of what's going on. When he comes and disses and doesn't go into the party, it's now publicly known. It is a public shame. And what would have been expected in this situation is for the father to ignore it and deal harshly with him afterwards. But what does he actually do instead? He does another shocking thing that demonstrates his willingness to endure shame and self-emptying love. Right in front of his guests, he's willing to reconcile with his older son, and he goes out after him. And I hope you realize that was utterly unexpected. That was not protocol in this situation. That utterly goes against the grain. It's a love that's unheard of. He is the good shepherd in this situation that leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Now we have shock upon shock, you see. Because all would have expected the father to condemn the son. If the father does go out after him, they would expect him to really let him have it. You shamed me in front of my guests. I tried to throw a party for all of these people and your brother and you can't accept it. No, that's not at all what he does. He implores him, son, son, I love you. Please be reconciled to me and come to the party and celebrate. He can't. He can't do it. And you know what he does a second time? He disses his father again publicly. 
For the second time, he walks away, and his father is publicly shamed by his son. He loses face for a second time in the same episode. And I hope you understand, this is, this is shocking. And the reason why he cannot bring himself to celebrate is why. I've kept your laws. I never broke any of your laws. I did everything you ever wanted me to do. I never sinned like him. Despicable sin like him. I've been righteous this whole time. And now he's blinded by the light of his righteousness and he can't bring himself to see what is really going on. It's the sin of the lawkeeper. And here's what's interesting. Here's the irony of all of this. At this situation, at this juncture, if you compare, if you compare the sin of the prodigal, the lawbreaker, and if you compare the offense of the lawkeeper, the older brother, you have the older brother and the younger brother. Which one has the worst sin? And actually, the older brother dissed his father publicly twice and shamed him in two occasions. Which would have meant that as bad as the sin is of the parable or the prodigal, the younger son, as bad as the sin was of the prodigal, the sin of the older brother was actually worse. It was just as offensive, if not more offensive. And the irony is this. Even though his sin was actually worse, it was him who rejected the free offer of grace. So some concluding points. What do, we do? what do we make of this? What do we pull out of this? Well, here's one. Beware of law-breaking and beware of law-keeping. Beware of the sin of the lawbreaker. Beware of the sin of the lawkeeper. Beware of the younger brother and beware of the older brother in you. Jesus makes the point that both are equally offensive, but not both are equally dangerous, you see. Both are equally offensive, but not both of them are equally dangerous. Did you notice then that both of them reject their father? Both of them actually preferred what they could get from their father more than they actually wanted their father. And I think that's something that we should take in and of itself. The nature of sin is wanting what we can get from God rather than wanting God himself. But both of them were guilty of this. And Jesus points out that, the, that this is their real sin. And that both, that both of them, law-breaking and law-keeping, are equally offensive. However, there is one more that is dangerous than the other. And it's the sin of the law-keeper. And why is this? Because they have a harder time seeing their sin as sin. You notice that? When Jesus says, I've come to, what? Be with the, the sick. The sick are the ones that need the doctor, not the righteous. What is he saying? Is he really saying that there are some that are righteous that are not in need of salvation? No, that's not what he's saying at all. 
He's saying that some people have an easier time realizing that they are sick and that they need a doctor. And there are some people who have a harder time realizing that they are sick and that they need a doctor. That's what he means when he says, I've come. It's the, it's the sick that need a doctor, not the righteous. So beware. Beware of the law-keeping heart in you. All of us have the older brother in us. All of us have the younger brother in us to some extent. I know most of you are in Christ, and you understand that you are not saved by works of the law. But don't be deceived to think that you still don't struggle with the spirit of law-keeping. Don't think that the older brother hasn't been put to death in you. There are still places, there are still crevices of your heart where you reject God's grace through self-righteousness, by earning your way to God, by basing your stance on your merit. And here's some ways, I'm going to suggest these to you. Here are some ways that maybe you can self-assess yourself to maybe diagnose whether or not the older brother is in you. Do you get angry when things don't go your way? And do you, are you prone to think, I deserve better than this? Do you feel like, God, I serve you, and this is what I get in return? The older brother obeyed God perfectly, but when he didn't get what he really wanted, he got angry. So beware of your anger and ask, do you have a sense of, I obeyed, I did everything right, and this is what I get? See, this is an inverted way that we reject grace. I acted, I performed, and now I deserve. That's not the nature of grace. And sometimes suffering and trial exposes the ways that we actually don't want grace, we want merit. You see, in this story, another reason why the sin of the law keeper is so evil is because really the law-keeping son, the older son, saw his obedience and his self-righteousness as a way of manipulating the father into giving him what he want. You see, he, re- he usurped the authority that God had over his life, and he's saying, hey, you know what? As long as I keep all of the rules, you're subservient now to me, God. I keep the rules, you bless me. I keep the rules, you do what I want you to do. That's not how it works. Do you obey God to get things, or do you really want God Himself in order to resemble Him, to know Him, to delight in Him? Jesus redefines our understanding of sin in this passage because He says that sin is deeper than breaking rules. He says sin is the desire to usurp God's authority and make Him subservient to our agenda, you see. And we can do this either through law-breaking or law-keeping. Now, there are two basic approaches to life outlined here. One is that of the younger brother, like I pointed out, which is essentially throw everything off, live for your dreams, be your own God, follow your heart. And the other is the older brother, the moral conformist. Is your Christianity... And I ask you to self-assess, essentially moral conformity. 
Does that describe your relationship to God, moral conformity? Has your obedience become dry, cold, emotionless? Maybe you're getting crushed by the burden of moral conformity and you find yourself tempted to just throw it all off and just be free from the religious stipulations of my life. Do you see obedience to God as a life-giving thing or a life-sucking thing? Because if you understand your obedience to God as being a life-sucking thing, I don't know. I don't know if you really know the grace of God in that. Or maybe another symptom of the older brother in us is making a very big deal, an overly big deal about our sin and self-punishing ourselves to the point of, I'm going to make atonement for my sin. You see, harping on how bad you are and how awful I am and how sinful I am and how awful, bad, sinful. It's almost as if you don't accept that Jesus, yeah, 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 you're a sinner and I've paid for it and you can move on now. There is a balance between understanding the severity of our sin, but there's also a place where we realize Jesus has paid it in full. Hallelujah! Do you rejoice in forgiveness of sin, or are you harping on your sin as if it's so bad, bad, bad? Are you trying to make atonement for yourself, essentially, and rejecting the atonement that God has available for you in Christ? Okay, last point. See the gospel in this passage. See it. Oh, the gospel is so lively in this passage. See the heart of his father, the heart of the father, and the sacrificial love for his two sons. Do you see the atonement that he makes when he suffers in his place? The imputation of his righteousness when he stands in place of his son? And causes him to be cut off from the kazaza, facing the, 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 the facing the wrath of God. He clothes him with a robe of his righteousness, of his good standing. And now he has a new identity. There's an incarnation theme here too. How the gospel, how God incarnates himself. He takes on flesh and comes out to us. You see, God approaches his son. He runs out to him. I mused on this. Actually, wonder, where would they have to live? If he was able to see him from a far distance off, wouldn't they have to be kind of high up on some kind of a mountain? Perhaps they had lots of power and wealth in their community and in their village, and they were kind of like the ones that everybody saw. But nonetheless, how would he see him, his son, coming to him from a long distance off? And if it's true that he ran out to him, not only in that is there an incarnation theme, but would he have had to descend down the hill to go to his son? That's something we can explore. But nonetheless, you see, there are two... There's this, okay, so the two sons represent and encapsulate the way that humanity, the way that man responds to God and approaches God. One is in the younger son, and they're unrighteous and they know it. And you know what their approach to God is? I'm going to patch it up. 
I'm going to pay off my debt. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to fix it. And then the other son, the older son, their mentality, their approach to God is, I'm not even that bad. They're uh, they're self-righteous and they don't know it. The younger son is unrighteous and they know it. The older son is uh, self-righteous and they don't know it. And they think, God should bless me. God should accept me. Yeah, I might have some flaws, but it's not as bad as them. And do you see what Jesus is teaching us here? That man's way to approach God will never bring you to God. If you have the attitude of, yeah, I'm unrighteous, but I'll patch it up. I'll fix it. I'll do better. I'll try harder. Or if you have the older brother mentality, you know what? I'm not that bad. I'm nowhere bad as, as bad as so and so and so on. You will not find God that way. And that's Jesus' warning. That's man's approach to God. And what he highlights is God's approach to man. God comes to man in mercy and grace. God comes to man, he runs out to him. And the only way that you can be a son of the living God is to accept it freely as a free offer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him for the first time. And for those of you who have believed in him for your whole life, believe in him again. Believe in him where there's the younger brother in you and the older brother in you. And put to death both of them. Put to death the ways that you are trying to earn your way to God based on merit. And receive the grace of God. Some of you might be wondering if your sin is so great that God could still love you. What if I am defiled with my porn addiction? What if I have blood on my hands because I have aborted a baby? What if I am the adulterer? What if I struggle with homosexuality? What if I'm disobedient and dishonorable to parents, to my parents? Or what if I'm a thief that cheats on my taxes? And the list could go on and on. And the reality is, God still loves you. And nothing that you have done is greater than the grace that God extends to you. I've often wondered, I don't know if you ever have, does God ever get to the place where he just has it with the Pharisees? When you read the Gospels and some of the harsh things that Jesus says to the Pharisees, don't you ever wonder, is there a place where he just has enough with them and cuts them off, I'm through with you? And this story, the father and the way that he relates to his older son goes out to the Pharisee and he implores him to come in. Oh, the grace of God, a love that is unheard of. And if he doesn't give up on the Pharisees, brothers and sisters, he won't give up on you either. Let's pray. Our Father... Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your steadfast love. 
Thank you for a love that you have displayed to us in Christ that is unheard of. Thank you, Lord God, for your patience with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would just use this word to help us respond to you in faith. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.